0: If you have your copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10 will be our text for this morning. And as you are turning to Leviticus chapter 10, I just want to express my gratitude to the deacons for their prayers this morning. I am humbled to serve in this role. I am humbled by their prayers for me and for my family. But I also want to say how grateful that I am for our deacons. The deacons and I, for the past few months, have been reading through a book together about deacons, just to think about deacon ministry together. And as we have read through that book and talked about it repeatedly, I am reminded of how grateful that I am for the men who serve our church in this role and how different things could be if the dynamic between the pastor or pastors and the deacons were not what it is not every church knows a body of men that sees their role as servants of the church and i appreciate our deacons their servant heartedness and the camaraderie that we share in ministry together so thank you deacons Congregation, as I have before, I encourage you to continue to pray for our deacons and to express gratitude to God for these men who serve us so faithfully. Something that I'm not so excited about or so enjoy are traffic laws. Traffic laws are a good thing. They are intended to serve drivers, pedestrians, and some traffic laws I don't necessarily like, but I understand. For example, just thinking about speed limits for a moment, Old Reynoldsburg. Many of you know that the the speed limit through Old Reynoldsburg was lowered to 25 sometime in the past months. I don't know exactly when. If anybody can tell me when the last time was that they were actually even able to drive 25 through that section, I'd be happy to know that. Uh, But I get why they lowered that, wanting to make that area more pedestrian friendly. I don't necessarily like it when I have to slow down going through there, but I get it. One that I don't get, I'll be honest, 50 on Broad Street. I get it once you get out going towards Pedaskala and you're out in the country, but in the residential section I don't get it. I've been a victim of 50 on Broad Street. Fortunately, not too terribly, though the car was totaled, but others much more severely. I I just I don't get. I don't get 50 on that that stretch. But that's That's a discussion for another day. Some laws we understand. Some we don't. Some we like. Some we don't. Sometimes we understand them. Sometimes we don't understand them. Sometimes we understand why they're enforced the way that they are enforced. Sometimes we wonder if a particular law is even being enforced. And today we come to a passage that addresses laws of God and it raises questions for us perhaps about their enforcement and how things are and are not being enforced in this passage. And in those questions, there is an opportunity, there is an invitation for us to consider closely and seriously how we approach the living God. Follow along as I read Leviticus chapter 10. Now, one more comment before I read Leviticus 10. If you're joining us this morning because of the Christmas season, perhaps you're here visiting with someone, you're with them at Christmas for whatever reason, you may hear this passage and think, wait a second, that's not very Christmassy. No, it's, it's really not. As I said earlier, we've been working our way through the book of Leviticus and this is where we come this morning in our next study of the book of Leviticus. However, I will say that there is more about Christmas in this passage than meets the eye. And if you don't believe me, come back next week and we'll see. We won't necessarily be looking at Leviticus 10 next week, but we'll see how this connects with the hope of Christmas. Anyway, Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And Do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Itamar, his Surviving sons, take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings. For so I am commanded, but the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons do, from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a do forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Itamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Now, as we consider seriously how we approach the living God, in keeping with the theme of traffic laws and driving, Three overall observations, I think, help us to see how this passage calls us to consider our approach to the living God. First, this passage, I think, warns us not to pump the brakes. Don't pump the brakes. While it tells us not to pump the brakes, it also reminds us that we must stay alert. We must stay alert as we read this passage and consider its application. And as we think about application and our approach to the living God, we must proceed with caution. We must proceed with caution. So don't pump the brakes. Stay alert and proceed with caution. First of all, don't pump the brakes. Now depending how old you are, you may have driven, and many of you drove, before the advent of anti-lock brakes. And before anti-lock brakes came on the scene, if you hit a stretch of ice or a slick patch, how were you to slow down the car? The way my dad taught me was you are to pump the brakes because you don't want to turn your car into a set of ice skates. But the rules have changed. The rules have changed with the advent of anti-lock brakes. The anti-lock braking system that many, if not all, of our cars are now equipped with is designed to pump the brakes for you so that if you pump the brakes, you contravene, you counteract what the car system is actually trying to do and help you, and you can make the matters worse. So if your car has anti-lock brakes, don't pump the brakes. This passage, I think, warns us to not Pump the brakes. What do I mean? Well, this is a very striking event. It's easy for us to read and pass over and not really think too closely about what has happened. But what has happened at the beginning of the passage? Aaron has four sons who are serving with him who have just been ordained to the priesthood by the end of the passage, there are only two sons serving with Aaron. Because the fire of the Lord has burned two of them. This is a very serious event. And it's a serious event and a significant and dramatic event that we can be tempted to want to pump the brakes on. To say, wait a second, there's something wrong here, there's something amiss that I need to correct or adjust. In his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, author Jerry Bridges writes about the reality of pain, and suffering in this fallen world. And he reminds biblically the reader throughout that book that there are three character qualities of God that we must remember as we walk through pain and suffering in this life. We must remember that God is good. We must remember what the Scriptures tell us, that God is wise. He is all-wise and all-knowing. And that God is all-powerful. And when we come to a passage like Leviticus 10, and when we come to trials in our lives, we are tempted to want to question, challenge, rethink what we believe and what the Bible tells us about God's goodness, God's wisdom, and God's might. Now, when we come to Leviticus 10, I, I don't think we're tempted as we try and think through what's going on here and, and, and how should a 21st century mind think about this passage. I really don't think we're tempted to adjust the almightiness of God in this passage. It's there in terms of His power to take the lives of these sons, and it's on display. But I do think, as we try and think about what's going on in this passage, we can be tempted to rethink God's goodness. We can be tempted to rethink God's wisdom in order to make this story a bit more palpable. Here's what I mean. One way we might try and make this story a little bit more digestible is to challenge the goodness of God in this passage. And one of the ways that we might do this is to say, well, God is... Strong in his response, in his judgment against these two sons. But, that's the Old Testament God. That's not the New Testament God. And so we, either strongly or inadvertently, depending on how far we press this argument, we challenge the goodness of God as it is revealed in this passage. But friends, when you read all of Scripture, the God who is revealed in Leviticus chapter 10 is the God who is revealed on every page of the New Testament and every page of the Old Testament. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is a false dichotomy For us to think or to suggest that, well, the Old Testament God was harsh and vengeful, the New Testament God is loving and forgiving. Consider these passages. Exodus thirty-four, six through seven. Old Testament? How does God reveal Himself? The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the the Lord, a God, merciful gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And He goes on. And this refrain is heard over and over and over throughout the pages of the Old Testament. A God who is merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. That is the God of the Old Testament. But God in the Old Testament also shows up as a consuming fire. Twelve times throughout the Old Testament, the consuming fire of God shows up as it does here in Leviticus 10. What's interesting about those twelve occurrences, half of the time, God's appearance as a consuming fire is an act of judgment like it is in Leviticus 10. Like it is in Numbers 11 as the people complain before the Lord. And the fire breaks out. As Korah and others assemble a rebellion against Moses and Aaron in, no- in Numbers chapter 16, the fire of the Lord breaks out against them and other places. Yes, the fire of the Lord shows up in judgment as it does here in Leviticus chapter 10. But in the other half of the occurrences, God's judgment, or God's fire rather, shows up as an act of blessing. Remember what we read just last week at the end of Leviticus chapter 9? Notice there, Leviticus chapter 9. In verse 22, Aaron lifts up his hands and blesses the people. Verse 23, Moses and Aaron go into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. It was a good thing that God's fire showed up that day because it showed that He accepted the sacrifices that had been offered on their behalf. Leviticus 10, it's the same day. If you read there in verse 19, and Aaron said to Moses, behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. This is the same day. Those offerings are the offerings that were offered in Leviticus chapter 9. God's fire shows up as a blessing. Then God's fire shows up in judgment. He is still, He is always The God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And this act of judgment, I would argue, is an act of love for His people and for us. But as we think about that false dichotomy Old Testament God, harsh, vengeful. We've dealt with the Old Testament side. The New Testament God, loving and forgiving. You know what? That's true. In the New Testament, God does reveal himself as a loving God. First John, God is love. That is true. God is a God who provides forgiveness. In love, he has sent the lord jesus christ romans five eight says God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, but the New Testament is not silent about the consuming fire of the living God. Consider Matthew chapter three verses nine through twelve. This is John the Baptist speaking to the crowds, preparing the way for Jesus. "'And do not presume to say to yourselves, "'We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, "'God is able from these stones "'to raise up children for Abraham. "'Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. "'Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit "'is cut down and thrown into the fire.'" I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is John the Baptist anticipating the ministry of Jesus. You might say, Well, yeah, but Pastor Greg, John the Baptist was in the same vein, had kind of the same DNA as those Old Testament prophets. It's not surprising that he would talk about the unquenchable fire of God. But what about Jesus Himself? Matthew 5.22 I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire Matthew 13 40 through 42 as Jesus is explaining the parable of the weeds you can read that there in Matthew 13 just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire so it will be at the end of the age the son of man will send his angels and he will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth the writer of Hebrews describes God as a consuming fire worthy of our worship and our reverence. But if the point has not been established enough, consider two other passages Acts chapter 5. Do you remember? You note this down, we're not going to read it, but do you remember what happens in Acts chapter 5? There's a member of the church who brings his money to the feet of Peter and the other apostles. And he indicates that he's given all that he had obtained from the sale of property. He had not. This was a portion, but it wasn't all of it. And he lied. And you know what happened when Peter called him out on it? Ananias? He dropped dead. And then his wife came in. Sapphira. You know what happened to her when Peter confronted her? Dropped dead. In judgment. But also, remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul warns the Corinthian church in how they are approaching the Lord's Supper. He warns them that what they do with this observance that the Lord Jesus has given to His church is a serious matter. To the point that because of the way some of them have observed it, Paul says, the discipline of God has shown up to them in death. Some of them have been taken out of this life because of the way that they have approached the supper. Friends, it is a false dichotomy to read this passage and say, well, that's the Old Testament God. The New Testament God is like that is not like that. He is because the holy God of the Old Testament is the holy God of the New Testament. He is the One who is most holy. He is incomprehensibly good. But even if we're not tempted to downplay the goodness of God, perhaps we're tempted to downplay the wisdom of God in this passage and think, that seems harsh. Did God maybe overreact a little bit there? Was his hand a little too heavy in taking out those two men immediately? I mean, couldn't it have been like an electric fence where it was a little shock and they were pushed back? Why this strong response? Friends, we're going to deal in a moment with why this strong response But as we are tempted to challenge the wisdom of God, we need to remember. We need to remember that God is God and we are not. God is God and we are not. There is a world of difference between a disposition of faith that is seeking understanding, I believe God, I trust God, I admit that I don't understand and I want to understand better because I have questions. That's a perfectly appropriate disposition to bring to a passage like this. I trust in who God is. I believe that He is good. I believe that He is wise. But I just don't get it. As that man approached Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That is one disposition. It is altogether different to approach this passage or others like it with skepticism or judgment, seeking satisfaction. God is wrong in the way that He handled this, and He needs to prove to me why He responded in this way, or I won't be Satisfied. Few, if any of us, would be so crass in our approach. But, friends, we are not in a position to judge the actions, the character of the one true and living God who is perfectly holy and who does whatever He pleases in His goodness so that everything that He is and everything that He does is good. We are limited and we don't always understand it. But friends, we are accountable to God. God is not accountable to us. And in this passage, this passage I think, encourages us to affirm the wisdom and the goodness of God in this seemingly strong response in verse 3 of chapter 10. Notice, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And how did Aaron respond? He held his peace. An indication that he accepted this response. And we too are to accept even if we don't understand it. Because God is God and we are not because we are accountable to God and He is not accountable to us, because we can trust Him with every fiber of our being, Aaron accepted this response of Moses in reference to why God responded as He did. And in this way, this passage tells us don't pump the brakes on God even and especially when life is hard, when life is confusing, when things don't go the way that you would like them to. Friends, don't pump the brakes on God. He is to be trusted even in the pain, even in the sorrow, even in the loss. He is good and He is wise and He can be trusted to the end. But this passage not only encourages us not to pump the brakes, and as usual, the other points won't be as long as that one. This passage encourages us not only not to pump the brakes on God, but it also cautions us to stay alert to stay alert. There are a couple of dynamics as we read through this passage that we we need to be aware of. Notice, this passage is broken up really into three sections. In verses 1-7, through we have the reality of this priestly error. This priestly error of this strange fire being taken before the Lord and the consequences that Result and addressing of those consequences. We have in verses 8 through 11 a second section where Moses gives the priests instructions on who they are to be and what they are to do. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses." This is who they are to be, and this is what they are to do as priests as they have been discharged with their priestly responsibilities in being set apart in the ordination that we read about last week. But then, what happens in verses 12 through 20? We have another instance of priestly error. There was a wrong done, it seems, not it seems, most clearly, in verses 1 through 7. There is, it seems, a wrong done in verses 12 through 20. As Moses reminds the priests of their responsibility for the offerings, he notices something. Something has not been done that should have been done. Back up in verses 1 through 7, there was something that was done that should not have been done. There was an error of commission. Here in the second or third part of this chapter, there is now something that was not done that should have been done Moses believed. The priests, Aaron's sons, had not eaten the portion of the sin offering that they should have eaten. And he challenges them on this. Well, what's going on here? I think what we have going on, we have verses 8 through 11 that are really the emphatic point of the passage. Our attention is drawn to these sons who have died. But the emphasis of this passage is on what the priests are to be about as priests. And this shows up both in what precedes it, one through seven, and what follows it, twelve through twenty. So that in verses twelve through twenty, there is this challenge by Moses. You're supposed to eat the food of this sin offering. Why haven't you? Notice how Aaron responds. Verse 19, Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? It seems that what Aaron is asking Moses or how he is responding to Moses with a question is in this way. We have exercised, we have sought to exercise priestly wisdom in evaluating what should and should not be eaten. The requirements of us are to teach the people with our lives, obedience to the laws of the Lord, and with our lips. But we are also to distinguish between what is holy and common, what is pure and not pure or unclean. And it seems that what Aaron is saying is we have made an evaluation and we believed that in light of what has just happened to my sons, that this offering was not for us to eat, but it also was to address our sins so that it was appropriate that we not eat it. There seems to be in this moment an application of discerning between what is appropriate and inappropriate according to the revealed Word of the Lord. And Aaron and his sons, in exercising their priestly wisdom, determined we shouldn't eat this offering. So far as we can tell. And how did Moses respond? Moses approved. He lent his affirmation to their approach. Even though he saw it differently going into it, it's as if he understood where they were coming from and they're striving to honor the Lord in their applying of the law. He affirmed. But that's not at all what happened. Back up in 1-7, through is it? These two sons, by their lives, were not teaching the people of Israel how to approach the Lord. How do we know this? Notice in verse 2. Fire came out, or excuse me, back up in verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. There are the key words. This unauthorized or strange fire, there's much that we don't know about this fire. And there are more questions than we can ask or answer about the source of this fire. Was the problem with it where the fire came from? Was the problem with it the time at which they went into the tent of meeting and offered it? Was the problem that they went too far into the tent that they actually went all the way into the most holy place in offering this strange fire? Maybe one or all of the above or something else. But the main point is that these sons offered this fire which He, the Lord, had not commanded them. This is in stark contrast to what we have seen thus far in the book of Leviticus. Just this afternoon, we're not going to take time to go look at them again, But this afternoon, perhaps, go back and read through Leviticus 8 and 9 and notice how often there is an affirmation that what is being done is being done as the Lord commanded. That is the repeated refrain. The priests under following Moses' leadership were obedient to what the Lord had commanded. Here, the sons were not. They got creative in a way that transgressed what God had told them to do. He had told them, this is how you are to approach Me. This is what was required. And they decided to get creative. Friends, this does not mean that God is anti-creativity. Far from it. God is the God of creativity. Just look at the glory of His creativity revealed throughout creation. But when it comes to how we approach the one living and true most holy God, friends, we dare not go against what God has commanded of us we must stay alert and we must proceed with caution. We must proceed with caution. This passage reminds us in one way that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This passage warns us that we should possess a holy reverence before God and not think that we can just come before Him however we would. And I'll have more actually to say about this in the coming weeks. But I want to focus, as we bring our time to a close, to two specific points of application. The problem with how these men approached the living God is that they did not honor Him. They did not show Him to be most holy. Among those who are near Me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people... I will be glorified. They did not hold God out as most holy. They did not hold God out as the one to be feared, the one to be reverenced. And if we fall prey to the false dichotomy that the Old Testament God is a God of judgment and the New Testament God is a God of love and forgiveness, friends, we are not reverencing God. Moreover, if we fall prey to the false word that says we can come to God however we will in whatever path we choose, if we fall prey to the false belief that in the end all roads lead to the same God, God is not being hallowed. He is not being honored because the Scriptures bear witness that there is one and only one way into the presence of the Father. And that is by the person of His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way in which we can come into into the presence of the one holy God is with the clean hands and the pure heart that Jesus Himself can supply by His death and resurrection. Friends, there is no coming to God. There is no knowing God. There is no walking with God. There is no true spirituality of which God approves that is devoid of Jesus. Nor is there anything that God approves that is Jesus plus something else. Our God is a consuming fire. And in His grace, He has poured out that consuming fire on the person of His Son in His death in the place of sinners like you and me. This is what it means for Christ to be an atoning sacrifice. The fancy word is propitiation. The wrath of God poured out for sinners like you and like me. If you don't know Jesus today, friends, this is the only way that you can be made right with God. But here is the glorious good news. Our God who is a consuming fire does provide a way. He provides a way into His presence. So will you today look to Jesus? Will you today cast yourself on the steadfast, faithful love of God in Christ? we must consider carefully how we approach the living God. And we must approach Him through Jesus. But I said there were two points of application. The other is right here before us. Scripture is very sober about the fact that when we observe the Lord's Supper, it is is a sober moment. It is a celebratory moment. We take the bread and the juice with joy, with thankfulness in our hearts for what God has done for us in the breaking of Christ's body for us, His death in our place, and the shedding of His blood. We rejoice in that. Scriptures also make plain, as I alluded to from 1 Corinthians 11, that we must approach this table soberly, not in an unworthy manner. And so, as we prepare to take the supper together after we sing, use the time of our singing to examine your heart, to cry out to the Lord. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Open my eyes that I may see hidden sins that I may confess them to you. Do work with God as we pray and sing. But also, as we prepare to take this supper, let me say to you who are here who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you haven't identified with Him in believer's baptism, let me encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup now. When we read Scripture, when we look at the participants of the Lord's Supper, Scripture makes plain that it is those who are baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not you today, observe what is happening here. Perhaps you're here today and you don't know Christ at all. And you need to come to Him by faith. You can do that right now. I would love to talk to you this week. Perhaps you're here today and you say, I'm trusting Christ, but Pastor Greg, I haven't followed Him in believer's baptism. I would love to talk to you this week about what that would look like for you. As we are all here, and as we all prepare to enter into this time, let us proceed, yes, celebrating what God has done for us in Christ, but let us also proceed with caution, recognizing that as we celebrate, we celebrate not only the God who loves and the God who forgives, but also the God who is a holy consuming fire let's pray heavenly father as we come before you father we pray that by our lives that you would be hallowed father I pray as The deacons earlier prayed for me. I pray, Father, that by my life, you would be increasingly hallowed, honored, held with reverence. Father, we pray that as we prepare to sing the praises of Jesus, as we prepare to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, especially His death and burial as we celebrate and take the Lord's Supper. We pray that You would help us individually to do so in a worthy manner. Help us to do so with soberness. Help us to do so with joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.